8. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Romans 11. We'll continue in our series here. Romans 11. Today we'll be thinking on the topic of rejection. And I want to begin with a couple of pictures. You know, sometimes rejection can feel very isolated, like only one person who you never thought would turn against you might turn against you, like this guy here, not a very good friend. Uh, At other times, rejection can seem much more wholesale. I found this picture this week on an article that I was reading. The article was entitled, It's Not Me, It's You, A Loser's Guide to Dealing with Rejection. And if you look at this picture, man, his entire world is walking away from him. Even his girl is leaving with the plant. Dude's dog is leaving. That is tough. His social community online, everybody is abandoning and ghosting this guy. He's isolated. He feels it. And as I read this article, this article was saying that now in today's society, more than ever... Studies show we are likely to feel lonely, isolated, and rejected. And as bad as these things are to be rejected by the people in our life, there's even a deeper, more foundational rejection that we can experience. We can think that God might be rejecting us. That's an awful thought, isn't it? What if God cancels his commitment. He, he reneges on his promises. One writer put it this way. Jenny Linda Clerk said, It's one thing to be rejected for a job or a college program, rejection from strangers who don't know you, but it's another thing to be rejected by someone who chooses to remove his love after knowing who you really are. And then she asked the question, Am I only one step away from being rejected by God because of my sin? See what she's feeling there? If God knows everything about me, including my evil rebellion, might he turn away from me? Ever feel that way? Perhaps you're more corporal in your feelings regarding rejection. You're a big picture guy. You like to think on the macro level. This week a friend shared with me a text. Well, it wasn't a text. It was on their Instagram account. And they posted this. They posted, according to Barna, only 6% of Americans now hold a biblical worldview. And after that fact, she put, oh, how the American church has failed. Right? She was experiencing anxiety because of the failure of her tribe, of her people. And maybe you feel that too. Maybe with political issues. Maybe it's gun control or immigration or gender issues, you just feel that the American church isn't responding the way that we should. Or maybe it's with national leaders. Maybe you've seen someone deconstruct or you've seen someone get on Twitter that you really respect and then they start mouthing off and you no longer respect them and you're looking around the landscape and you're thinking, man, this church isn't so pretty. Is God just going to leave us behind? Is he going to reject us? Well, today, as the Bible always is, in Romans 11, if you're feeling any of those feelings, if you ever feel isolated or rejected, this text 
will speak to you. We're going to continue on with our sermon series here in the book of Romans. We've just been plowing right through it for the love of God, studying the entire book. And today we arrive in Romans 11. Before we jump into the text, I just want to pray for us together. So let's pray. God, today, Heavenly Father, we remember that Jesus himself said that Scripture cannot be broken. So we come here to hang on to it like a life buoy. Jesus also promised us before he left this world that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide us in all the truth. Lord, we ask for guidance in your truth now, or we easily lose our way. And Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. God, we come to you now with a spiritual fever, as broken and bruised, frightened, fearful. Our days can be dark. Our work weeks often hard. Our hearts can beat heavy. God, heal us in Christ today. Be our Asa, our physician we pray this as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we turn back to the book of Romans, we want to orient ourselves. Last week, we were in chapter 10. Now, we're in chapter 11. So, let's remember what was happening. At the end of chapter 9, all the way through chapter 10, we were noticing as Paul the Apostle wrote this book, he pointed out a bleak picture of the Israelite people. He was saying that as they interacted with the law of God and God's commandment and God himself, they came at him with an idea of working and impressing God and impressing one another, not with the idea of faith, as God had said. They rejected his ways and they turned from him. And finally, at the end of the chapters we've been studying, we saw how Israel had refused to believe in Jesus Christ, even though they'd heard the gospel plainly. They just refused it. The final word of chapter 10, where we left off, verse 21, says this. Of Israel, God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now get the picture. It's kind of like every rom-com you've ever seen. Maybe... You know, you've seen the scene in a movie where the woman is getting off the plane. She hasn't seen the man, and he dives through the crowd. And then, here I am, and she runs to his arms. And now picture a movie scene like that where the guy says, Oh, here I am, and the woman keeps running, and she goes to another guy. And it's like, ah, that's the picture Paul is painting about how God is standing there waiting, even coming towards his people. Israel, God after God after God, they are rejecting him. So Paul is going to ask the appropriate question that might be on the mind of the church at Rome. The church of Rome is thinking, oh, if God's people, his chosen people, have rejected him, look at verse 1. The question Paul is dealing with is, I ask then, has God rejected his people? See there? They're anticipating how a human heart might work. A human heart says, if you hurt me, I'm going to put up boundaries here. I'm going to build a fence so that I won't get hurt again. 
So the church at Rome is asking, is that the way God works when we fail him? When we reject him, does he just reject all of his people? Paul's answer is worth remembering. Package this up, put it in your pocket. It's right there. He says, God reject his people by no means. Never. God will not reject his people. No way, no how. Pull the plug on that line of thinking. God does not reject his people. Our God holds. Our God holds. He sticks. He waits. He delivers. He hugs. He hangs. Yes, he's a God of justice. Yes, he punishes sin. But when it comes to his people, our God holds. And we have to remember that when we're faced with loneliness and the idea of rejection. This was just as crucial for the church at Rome and the ancient world to hear as it is for us today. Now think about it. What if God made a pledge to redeem Israel and then he weaseled out of it? But what would that mean to all the promises he's giving us in Christ? Promise of eternal life. Promise of resurrected bodies. Promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Promise of justice finally reigning. All of those promises are in jeopardy if he turns away from his promises that he made to his people Israel. So as he goes through this chapter, Paul is going to give us two examples of how God holds his people. Let's see if we can follow along here. The first one comes in the first couple of verses. God holds you even if others fall away. God holds you even if others fall away. Let's just keep reading in verse 1. Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? How should we answer? By no means. And this is his argument then. How do we know this? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul chooses his own life to illustrate and make his first point that God will hold you even if others fall away. He's saying, look at me. I'm an Israelite, and God accepted me. I'm of the tribe of Abraham, and he didn't let go of me. I'm of the house Benjamin. You could be no more Israelite than I am, and God has kept me. If God were in the business of rejecting Israel lock, stock, and barrel, he would not have kept Paul. He's an example of how God will keep his people. He didn't cast Paul off. While all of his countrymen and his brothers seem to be falling away and going the other way from Jesus, Paul is still standing. That's proof positive that a full-blown corporate rejection of Israel is not in view. Even though his tribe had mostly failed, God still had a plan for him. And he's still got a plan for you. Look in verse 2. God hasn't rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now we're going to come back to this phrase in just a minute. For now, just note, note how we are assured that Paul is not rejected 
even though he's associated with a bunch of rebellious people. And we have a category for this. Even today, think about how the country of Russia has invaded Ukraine. And you see now the international community, especially in the West, they are denouncing Vladimir Putin. They're giving sanctions to the Russian uh, economy there. They are against what the military is doing. They're hard on the Russian government, even on Russian TV, which is owned by the state. This week, you may have seen a prominent journalist came out and he said, you know what, this is a Russian guy talking to Russian people. He said, maybe we ought to stop this because the whole world's against us now. That's not going to work out. And yet we have a category for a Russian citizen who hasn't done anything to not be in jeopardy. Nobody's sanctioning an individual citizen. But we have a category for this idea that Paul is giving you. Many of your peers may be rejected. But that does not mean that your salvation isn't trouble. That doesn't mean that God is not holding you. Jesus spoke to this idea. You might remember in Matthew 10, Jesus was talking to his disciples one time and said, listen guys, your peers have all failed. I came for Israel and I've been presenting myself. We've been walking around and your peers have failed. They, had it, they hated me so badly, they called me Satan. This is Jesus talking. He said, so you guys need to remember this verse 22, Jesus said of Matthew 10, you'll be hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures, in the end they will be saved. Jesus talked that way. He could promise that God would let, not let go of his people because he demonstrated his own commitment. Think about Jesus' commitment to his people. He came in human flesh, lived this unique life, he enjoyed and obeyed God at all times. He was the substitute on the cross for you and I, all who have faith in Jesus, Jesus died for. He was demonstrating God's commitment to us as his death paid their sin debt, his resurrection validated all that God had promised. In light of all this, Jesus speaks and says, no matter who in your tribe seems to be falling away, I am holding on to you because you are God's child. I bought you with my work on the cross, and you are mine. I remember about six months into the pandemic, I was talking to a friend and a peer in ministry, and I was talking to him, and I said, hey, how's it going? And he said, well, I'm not doing so good. I'm kind of low. I said, oh, man, what's happened? Something with your family? have COVID, what's going on? He said, no, no, that's not what's so heavy on me. What's heavy on me is things that I'm reading that are happening here in our American church. He was being sucked under by his understanding of all the trials that the church was going through. He said, ah, we're not handling social justice issues very well. We should be responding different to these gender issues. We've got sexual abuse cases involving Christian leaders. All of this was just a heavy weight. And he was thinking, man, has our church completely failed the broader American church? And is God going to reject us? And that's because he had a soft biblical heart that he felt this way. A soft heart yearns to see justice. 
A spirit-filled hand picks up the spade and does the hard work. The lips of God's children should always want to speak out against sexual abuse. As we combat these corporate ills that plague us, we must not get mired in the darkness. We must remember that God is not going to throw everyone away because of our failures. Oh no, because of the life and the work of Jesus, the one who endures to the end will be saved. God holds on to you even when others are failing. That's Paul's first point there. He's going to show us another way that God holds on to us. It's kind of a different scenario than verses the end of verse 2 and verse 4. When you feel all alone, know that God still holds. All right? When you feel all alone, know that God still holds. Look in verse 2. So he's already made the first argument. You might see other people falling away, but it doesn't mean God's rejected you. It doesn't mean God's going to turn on you. Here's the second argument. When you feel all alone, God still going to hold on to you. Verse 2, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? So he's going to take the life of Elijah and use it as a teaching example here. Do you not know how Elijah appeals to God against Israel? In verse 3, Elijah said, Lord... They have killed your prophets, and they have demolished your altars. How's he feeling? I alone am left. I'm the only one left. And now they're seeking my life. You can find this story. It's fascinating if you want to read it in 1 Kings, verses 18 and 19. The story of the great prophet Elijah. The fantabulous life this guy is living. At one point, he sees idolatry in the nation. He goes to the king. He says, hey, king, I got, a, I got a challenge for you. Let's have a matchup here to see whose God is real. And let's make it fair. One, me, versus 450. That's as close as I can get to fair. My God has one representative. You have 450. And let's see whose God's going to show up and show his glory to the people. And, of course, the king accepts. They light fires, or they try to. The worshipers of Baal can't get their altar lit. If they try, they try, they try. And God lights his glorious altar up to show how he dominates all of the evil idol worshipers. And after that, Elijah's riding this big high, seeing God closely. And the next time we turn the page in Elijah's story, we find him in a cave. He's hiding why? The scripture says he's feeling all alone. The queen has put a price on his head. Turns out she doesn't like being shown up. And Elijah's standing there and he's, he's talking to God. We get this conversation. Elijah says, God, am I the only one? Is it just me? Have you rejected me, God? Because I'm looking around. I don't see a lot of people following you and I feel alone. Feel alone. Does that, does that mean you're rejecting me? Is that what's going on here? But listen to God's sweet response to Elijah found here in verse 4 of Romans 11. It's good stuff. That's what he says, verse 4. 
What was God's reply to Elijah in his lonely state? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Ah, what a beautiful phrase for someone alone feeling rejected. Seems like you're the only one, but you need to know I've kept 7,000 who are standing with you. It's a special keeping. What's it for? A generic purpose? No. An abstract purpose? No. What does it say? I have kept for myself. You feel abandoned? You feel alone? You feel isolated? Know this, that God holds you for himself. Ah, that's sweet medicine. That is good news. It must have been about eight years ago now that I can remember where I was standing when I got a text on my phone. If a former church member I had uh, kind of faded out of church life, so I was trying to catch up with him and contact him, contact him. Finally, I hear back from him on a text. He said, oh, this is where I've been. I just want to explain myself to you. He said, I've kind of drifted away from the fellowship. And he said, here's what happened. He said, I had no idea. He said, me and my wife were dealing with some immense mental health issues. They were huge. She was going through some depression. And he said to me, he said, I'm reading the scriptures and I read the story of Elijah, and it feels like a mirror. It feels like it's staring right into my soul because I feel isolated. I feel alone. Battles with mental health will do that to you. This guy was screaming. He was living this tech. Loneliness was stalking him around every corner. This week I got a different word on my phone. I've been tracking with Barbara. Thomas and her daughter, Beth Tripp, for a long time, been praying for Scott Thomas, longtime member here at TCC, and this week he finally succumbed. He's no longer in this world, now he's with Jesus, but the family will have a long road of loneliness. feels lonely when you lose someone. Pastor Steve DeWitt wrote this about his own loneliness. He said, In my worst moments of relational despair and unfulfilled longings, if you lose someone, that's what you have, unfulfilled longings. He said, I look at the possibility of a life alone, and my loneliness guides me down a secret passageway of divine assurances. When I allow my loneliness to lead me there, I find the God-sized ache soften with God's presence and His promises. This is something I bet you overlook about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You might think when Jesus died and He was buried and He rose again, you might think that He just went from death to life, right? But it's much more than that. He went from gone to being present. The opposite of being dead isn't just abstract. He's alive. It is he is with you by his spirit. When he left and went to heaven, he said, my spirit, my spirit, I'm giving to you so that you will never be alone. Praise God for our living present Lord in Jesus Christ. We sense this reality in the classic poem by William Cowper. 
says this. Get the picture of Jesus he's painting here. He said, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the seas and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Beautiful picture. In the midst of your life storm, who's riding the waves towards you? It's Jesus. Let's don't judge him by what Cowper calls a feeble sense, that heat moment when you're feeling loneliness. Because it's not real. What's real is that Jesus is in your storms of life, headed towards you, present with you, working things out so that in the end, you'll get the joy and God will get the glory. If loneliness grips you like a vice this week, let's rest together in the truth. Our God holds you. He holds you when you're lonely. Second point. We've seen how God holds. Now, Paul's going to talk about why God holds. Look at verse 5 here. Moving from the how to the why. After giving us examples here of how God holds, we'll now see the foundational reason in keeping his people. This is the glue that cements the grip of God on your life. Look closely at why he holds so tightly in verse 5. So if God was with Elijah, so too at the present time there is a remnant. That Bible word just means a portion of the Jewish people. There's a portion of God's people that are still chosen by grace. From the perspective of the church in Rome, it might seem to them, man, all the Jews are rejecting Jesus. They're all going to be God. But here Paul turns our attention away from rejection and towards God's selection. Away from rejection and toward God's selection. Our acceptance was always based on God's choice. His selection of a people for himself. Remember the phrasing from verse 2 earlier. I said we'd come back to it. It's this wonderful phrase. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, we've seen earlier in the book, when Paul talks about foreknowing, he's not just talking about having information ahead of time. He's talking about a deep love for his people that God has. Jesus used this. In John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, therefore I know what they're going to do ahead of time. No, he says, I know them. I love them. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. So here in Romans 11:5, God says there remains a people whom God has loved and whom God has chosen. He holds his people because of his intimate covenantal love. It can't fail. His love is that deep. It's who God is by nature. His love doesn't tarnish, doesn't rust. It doesn't strip like a screw that you screw a little too far and then, ah, I've stripped it. That's not the way God's love is. 
doesn't go bad over time like the apple on my counter. If I don't eat it. It's not the way the love of God is. His pledged love holds. Now we see a great example of this in the book of Isaiah. If you're a Bible turner, if you like it in your lap, you can flip over to the book of Isaiah 49. If that's not you, I'll just put it on the screen. But it's a fascinating example of why God holds. He lays it out here. Now, in Isaiah, the context is Israel's exile. They have failed God for the last time, finally, and he's taken them out of their country. All right? He's marched them from their homeland. They've been stripped of their dignity. They've been robbed of their identity. And now we get to hear Israel talking to God about this. It's a very intimate moment we're eavesdropping on. Listen to what we see in Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 14. The people of Zion, Israel, God's people say, The Lord has forsaken me. Sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? My Lord has forgotten me. Turns out God's people have always felt lonely. They've struggled with this. Look at God's response. Isaiah 49, 15, he gives an example. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. So he takes the greatest example of an attentive parent. A woman's not going to forget her baby if she's nursing him. He's dependent on her. She's not going to walk off and leave him. Even though Father's Day coming up, I must admit, as a parent of six, there have been times when I have forgotten one of the kids, vastly outnumbered. There's six of them. Stop using their names. Just use their numbers now. One of them's here. Just kidding, number four. But he says, even, even attentive parents... Sometimes forget. But look what he says here. Beautiful. He says, yet I will not forget. Right? Take the greatest example in your world of someone who will never forget, and they're still going to fail. But me as a God, I will not forget. Why? 16. Another great picture. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's beautiful. The God who has created the universe has your name tattooed on his very person. That's how deep his covenantal love for you. It's permanent. As sure as the nail wounds in Jesus' arms, is God's permanent love for you. Now, you may have a question. Well, I understand that God loves me, right? But if I am indeed a broken, mutinous, rebellious person sometimes, why does he love me? I understand he loves me, but why? What's the why behind the why, right? Well, that's in Isaiah too. Isaiah also in chapter 48 If you're in Isaiah, flip back one chapter, and God explains kind of the why behind, why is your love for me so deep? Because I don't feel like I'm worthy of it. He explains it to us. 
7. Isaiah 48, 9. Why doesn't he just cut me off? Sometimes I wonder that. Here's his answer. Isaiah 48, 9 and following. Well, God says it's for my name's sake. That's why I defer my anger. It's for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you. That I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tried you in a furnace of affliction for my own name's sake. For my own sake. I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Here's what he's saying. My glory shines brightly if over and over again I pour my forgiveness on you and my mercy on you and I stick with you. My name looks much better than all the other puny gods you're going to want to worship. It's for my name's sake. My glory is at stake here. I'm going to keep you so I don't look like a God who lets go. I'm a God who holds. And that's glorious. And that's why he's worthy to be worshipped. High above all the other gods. He shines as gloriously supreme. If we read through the rest of the Old Testament, God makes it clear that his love is special. When he says it's covenantal, that means it's binding. It's a living love relationship that God himself initiates. How do we best experience it? Well, we can see the answer one more time here in the same section of the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Another great example here. In Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 10, we learn that God's not just talking to the people that have rebelled against him. Turns out there's a third character involved. There's God talking, the Lord. There's the people. And then there's another character called the servant. And God turns to the servant here in the middle of this conversation and he says, I will keep you servant and give you as a covenant to the people. He marks this one character off and says, a verbal pledge is one thing, but I want you to actually be the covenant, the living, loving relationship between me and all my people that I won't let go of, you, servant, are the covenant. And then he goes on to say what the servant's job will be. He says, I give you to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, say, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all the bare heights shall be their pasture, and they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun will strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water he will guide them. This is the job description of the servant Messiah, who we now know is Jesus of Nazareth. To who Jesus is. That's why he can say of his death the words we just read moments ago in the Last Supper. Jesus said, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus is God's living love relationship with us. 
He is the covenant that shows off God's glory. That's why he holds on to you. His glory is at stake in Jesus' warm covenantal love for you. It's because of Jesus why he holds on to you. Finally, we've seen how God holds and why he holds. I just want to look at who God holds here in verse 6. Back in Romans now. I know we bounced around, but hopefully you're still tracking. Romans chapter 11. Verse 6, we're going to look at who God holds here. You can read verse 6. This is what it says. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, the word grace is mentioned four times in two verses here. So something's got to be up with grace here, right? What's he getting at? Well, those who God keeps, he keeps by grace. In other words, God doesn't hold on to those who approach him with self-righteous works. Many people will say, I'm good enough for God. Look at what I've done. But only Jesus has a perfect, straight-A moral report card. Only Jesus is completely righteous. No one can approach God based on their own works. They may claim they're being good, but they're not. Our acceptance has never been based on our works. Instead, God graciously and freely calls whomever he chooses, and that really is good news. God didn't convert you because you were spiritually pretty or shiny. He met you in your mess. Likewise, he doesn't hold you now because you're flawless. He knows you still sin. He knows you will rebel. You will kick against the goads. But God holds you because of his undying, gracious, loving choice. What better way to show off his glory than to lump forgiveness upon forgiveness on a people he has pledged himself to love? Look at both men that are mentioned here in the text. Paul, Elijah, we heard Elijah's story there. They had messed up lives. Turns out God specializes in holding stumbling, bumbling people, just like me and you. Think of the lives of King David, the murdering adulterer. Abraham gave his wife away. More than once, Peter, in the equivalent of going on social media and announcing it to the world, he goes around the fire and denies Jesus once, twice, three times. I don't even know the guy. Those are the people that God holds. Real people who come to God and say, I'm not righteous. I need Jesus. Modern writer Amy DeMarcangelo said this about her own parenting. Look what she writes in her book. She says, sometimes, this is a Christian leader, <laughs> sometimes I yell at my kids. That's not the whole quote. 
No, she writes this in her parenting book. I shame them for their bad behavior. I treat them like a nuisance. I don't listen to them. I resent their neediness. I withhold forgiveness. I nurse bitterness. I scowl and slam doors. My motive behind discipline becomes punitive instead of redemptive. Sound familiar? She's being real. She's being raw. I can relate to this. Is this the type of person God's going to hold on to? Let's keep reading her story. She says, I don't like confessing details of my anger to women in my community group. I'd much rather be the stellar example of godly motherhood, imparting wisdom to all who listen. But some days I'm simply a bad mom. In those times, I don't need the false assurance that I'm doing the best I can because that's not really true. I need the hope that Jesus can cleanse me from my unrighteousness. That's the type of heart that God is going to hold onto. Exactly the type of person that God grabs. He will not relent in Jesus. He has secured your salvation if you trust in Him as the only means to it. She's clinging to the promises of God as she writes. Promises we've already seen in this book of Romans. Remember Romans famously in chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Profession of someone who God holds. And all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by works. No, no, no. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. In Jesus, God's righteousness is on display. There's a great exchange that happens. God applies Christ's goodness to the person who needs it and calls for it and trusts him for it. Our sinfulness is counted on Christ, swapping his righteousness to us. A great exchange, and it's good news. That's who God holds on to, all who call out and trust in Jesus for this new life, secured by his perfect obedience, his death, and his resurrection. This week it was our joy to baptize four teenagers. As I was working, some of them were my kids. I was working with them, talking through testimonies. And honestly, as a father, not as a pastor, but as a father, I don't know what my kids are going to say when they talk about, what's God doing in your life? So I said, write me a note and tell me what God's doing in your life. And then we'll talk about baptism. It's a part of the process. That wasn't the whole part process, but one of them sends me a Google talk. That's how they talk. Okay, I open it up. I read it. It says these words. It says, I realized that I am deeply sinful like all of mankind and that there is no way for me to be saved without a flawless Savior. 
That's the kind of heart that God's going to hold on to. I finally realized I can't save myself. Been growing up in church, I figured that out. I've tried to do it, actually, and I fail every day. I need a perfect, flawless Savior. Upon that confession, God rests his grip on you in Jesus Christ. It's good news. I hope we can receive it. That's God's words for you today. When you go out of here, that's what God wants you to know from this text. The Spirit is saying, come to Jesus. Not on the basis of your work, on the basis of faith. And know and trust, accept His grace, and experience the God who holds. Let's pray together. God, thank you for a wonderful text. Not because it's artistic or poetic, although it is. Not because it's intellectually stimulating or it's entertaining, although it can be. Thank you for this text today because it's a door to you yourself. Through the Bible, we can see and hear you, O oh God, and our spirits can raise up. And I pray that you will raise our souls. It's a hard week. It's a hard week behind us, hard week ahead of us. Life doesn't get easy. But you can give us rest in Jesus. So I pray for that rest. May we know you as the God who holds. In Jesus' name we pray.